Welcome to episode 21, Managing Burnout in Addiction Treatment, Counseling versus Case Management, by Heather Black Coyne, Certified Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, welcome to Critical Thinking for Addictions Counseling. I'm Heather Black Coyne, and for the next hour, I'm going to be talking to you guys about managing burnout and addiction treatment, counseling versus case management. And I really love, I love working in addiction treatment, and I don't know if I'm an anomaly or not, but it's something that I'm really passionate about. I've been doing it for some time, for 10 years now, just about 10 years, and I learn more about it and get more excited about it each year, which is pretty exciting. And so my passion is to be able to share that excitement with other people, and I know that counseling and case management can be really exhausting, and there's not a lot of longevity in those roles for those reasons, for a number of different reasons. We have a variety of education, a lot of times not enough education, training or experience. There's role confusion, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do everything. We're supposed to focus on the substance use disorder and make sure that this person gets the wraparound care that they need. There's all these different variables to this role. It's very, um, what's the word? It's very intriguing. It's complicated. There's layers, regulations, restrictions, policies, organizational values, all these different layers to this job that can really suck the fun out of it and make it a drab, for lack of a better word. I hear that the burnout and addiction treatment is somewhere around three years. I don't really have any facts, but I will say that in the time that I've been working in this field, I've seen a lot of people come and go. They start out really strong, they're in it for a little while, and then it just fizzles out. And there is a high degree of energy required for this job, positive energy, physical energy, and it's difficult to maintain all of that all of the time and make sure that we show up in an effective way for ourselves and for other people. We get overwhelmed, we're weary, there's a lot of demands as I said, and so people who start out having a real passion for this industry end up going to work somewhere else, to be an accountant, one of my good friends went and worked in, works in a stamp shop, which he really loves and he's really good at. However, it's that kind of transition that I see often where people go from doing this to something that's more of a backseat role, less of a helper role. I don't want to say backseat role. I don't think it's a backseat role, but it's definitely different and maybe less of a helper role. So what we're going to talk about today is the healing work versus the busy work. And we certainly have to do both of those things in this role, in this field particularly. Case management has been around for a long time and really started with the deinstitutionalization of mental health clients back in the early 60s. And it's broadened and encompasses many different arenas now, courts, hospitals, mental health, substance abuse treatment, and there's something very powerful and core to what we do that helps people get well. So the case management part I emphasize is important. I also believe that it has a lot to do with why we get burnt out the way that we get burnt out. So we're gonna talk about counseling as a craft. What makes it so beautiful? What makes it so exciting? How is it that I love it still after this many years? We're not gonna talk about me so much. However, it's uh, inherent to that discussion about counseling being a craft. I have had some really wonderful mentors in my life that spent time with me, giving me books to read, 
giving me articles to read. I've looked up online different um, articles, research information related to what I do to learn and grow. And I've been really blessed in that way. And so I want to share that with other people because I think that education and that support and somebody investing in me as a counselor has really changed my life. And as a result, I get to show up and walk with people as they change their lives. So our objectives today are to identify differences between counseling and case management and how our relationship with the client is enhanced by clinical reflectiveness and effective boundary setting. Boundaries, 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 they are a big deal in this industry, in this field, and really in every relationship that we have. And it shows up regularly for us especially in the addiction treatment arena. And so those boundaries, having effective boundaries in this field really helps enhance our relationships. And we'll talk a little bit more later about how all of that begins to work for us in our favor. So if we start out with case management versus counseling, we talked about how case management really came to be in the early 60s. And in 2014, there was a study published by Rapp and Van de Nortgate, and it was named The Efficacy of Case Management with Persons Who Have Substance Abuse Problems. It was a three-level meta-analysis of outcomes. Two categories were identified and analyzed, treatment tasks and personal functioning. They identified five domains of treatment tasks. They are linkage with substance abuse services, retention in substance abuse services, linkage with ancillary services, retention in ancillary services, and satisfaction with treatment. So basically, we are linking people, keeping people in substance abuse services, services otherwise, and then satisfaction with treatment. And they found that the effect of case management on treatment tasks was more significant than on clients' functioning. However, their personal functioning is enhanced because one of the treatment tasks is retention. So if we can keep a client in the substance abuse services that they need, there's a higher chance, most definitely a higher chance, that the clinical interventions that we use are effective and enhance their personal functioning. So that's a big deal. Both of these two things really play hand in hand and both of them are necessary for positive outcomes for our clients. So case management is generally associated with the tasks that I identified from the study. It's the linking clients to resources and retaining clients and services that benefit them as outlined on their treatment plan. That can be hard to do, and it's really the counseling and the therapeutic relationship that help enhance that and allow those outcomes to improve. It's definitely case management. It's definitely a component of addictions counseling, as I've said. Oftentimes, though, it becomes the focus of what we do. The title, my job title, has been, for a lot of years, it's not currently, but has been case manager. So, as a case manager, with the demands, the things that I'm supposed to take care of, which have been a number of things, but it's obviously the linking um, client to services, whether that be healthcare services, whether that be operational services that they need, whether I am liaison between them and their parents for needs that they might have. I am oftentimes helping them do something such as make a phone call or set up volunteer work to satisfy a probation requirement. Um, those things are inherent to the job. And when I first became a case manager, I really began to embody those more case managery type tasks. So I forgot where I was going with that. However, I'm going to bring it back around right now that 
it was the counseling piece that really enhanced my passion and my love for what I do. And for a short while, as I said, when I first got the case manager title, although I was a case manager in other places, it wasn't titled that way. But when it when it became my title for a short while, I really started to embody those case management duties and then was really brought back to the counseling piece. And I would go from one end of the pendulum to the other. So I first came as when I first became a case manager, highly focused on the case management piece, not really doing the counseling piece that I love, but I'm naturally a counselor and curious and want to process. And so I would swing all the way to the other way and focus on all the counseling needs and then I would be left to do the case management needs. And I was exhausted trying to find a balance between the two. I found more joy in just sitting there and connecting and being with a client than I ever did just checking the boxes and finding all of those services that they needed and linking them and the coordination and collaboration, the emails and phone calls. I always found more joy in just being with a client. And I would swing the other way and my hour would be up and I didn't do any of the case management piece. And so I would have to use time that I didn't have the rest of the week and I would work a lot of hours trying to make up the difference for the time that I lost in the session to actually do the case management piece. So finding that balance, figuring out how to do the both is really an art in itself. Counseling and addictions treatment is a beautiful art in itself and we're going to talk about that today. So for me, case management is example. Client is experiencing pain and it's leading to this person's increased use of substances to help manage the pain. So the case manager hat says, find a medical referral, get them there, have their pain assessed, and manage medically. The addictions counselor hat says, let's talk about the primary, the secondary gain associated with this pain. Let's talk about the emotional distress and the effect on your emotional well-being as a result of being in pain, and then subsequently the use of substances and all of the negative consequences that that brought along too. So we could sit there and really process. So those that's what helps differentiate it for me. That's how I see it. If that helps you to have a picture. Trying to do both is what I love to do. It feels like a challenge. It's obviously necessary. We've talked about it. Um, but it's a challenge to be able to do both and I'm up for the challenge. I get really excited about it and I learn so much more about the client and feel like I connect so much better with the client as a result of being able to do both. Had I not done the addictions counseling piece, I lose so much information about my client and their experience that's really valuable to their treatment process. SAMHSA, their TAP21 identifies 13 competencies for individual counseling, and it's a wonderful resource, SAMHSA, all their TAPs and their tips, but TAP21, these competencies, they'll list them out, and each competency has three subcategories of skills, knowledge, and attitude necessary to activate each competency. And I think that's really beautifully outlined and provides a picture, one, of the complexity of what we do, the different layers associated with each individual skill we're trying to implement. But what I like about it even more is that they put the attitude part in there. With the right attitude, we can develop ourselves and assist our clients in the most profound ways. With the right attitude, we can really get this, own this, love it, and show up in such a way that's so beautiful and designed just for us and how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to show up in this space. So the beauty of addictions counseling and case management, um, we can't get away from the fact that we need both of them. 
I think it's a beautiful process that we get to learn how to couple the both of them. And we can absolutely do both. We can absolutely love both. It's taken me a long time to get to that place. Like I said, I swing from one end to the other end. I can tend to be rigid and checkboxy or loosey-goosey, you know, therapeutic-y, process-y all over the place. So it... My journey has had a lot of trial and error in it, and I'll tell you that the effects of my trial and error have often led to feeling burnt out for a period of time, whether that be a month or two months, and just showing up, blech, not excited for much at all, really. And so that's the impact. That's the impact that this job has and really trying to find our find our own way in doing all of this. So what I finally got to and what I hope might be effective for you, I'll put it out there or you can choose to adopt it or not. But what I really found was that I would spend 10 to 15 minutes doing quote unquote housekeeping, AKA case management. And I would spend the other 30 to 40 minutes doing addictions counseling. Now, that's just a generalization, and sometimes one session would be weighted one way, one, you know, more case management than counseling. I was able to be flexible. I am able to be flexible and really do what's needed in the moment. But generally speaking, I found that that's what worked for me. And I found that to be a really powerful combination, particularly with the housekeeping items on the end, because what we discussed and processed revealed additional resources, referrals, or necessary linkages that the client needed that I was able to provide at the end and really close the session out well with. So the skills, let's get to the skills that we need to be effective in the role and to really enhance that clinical relationship. I wanna say that I believe My personal development in the use of skill has extended my time in this career because I get to show up and connect with another human at a human level. I get to grow professionally. I'm challenged in positive ways, although it doesn't always seem positive in the moment, but I'm challenged so I get to grow and I think I have, we all have this innate drive to grow. And I get to celebrate with clients' progress in both their functional and emotional needs. So we get to see big problems become manageable and um, absolved. New challenges come along. Clients are able to deal with it. And we get to see it across the board, whether they're checking off boxes for probation, housing, food, or they're working on coping skills, communication, relationship, and oftentimes they're working on both of those things. So at some point, you get to see this client, this individual's life come together in this very full and rich picture in their best interest, and that's really exciting to celebrate with them. The first challenge, before we even get to the skills, The first challenge, Dr. David Mealy and Dr. Deborah Teplow facilitated a webinar on NADAC for self-care for the addiction professional. And they said something really profound, and I want to share it with you guys, that for the addiction professional to do well, they have to be well. We have to take care of ourselves first and foremost. That's really a big deal. So spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. I have to take a look at all those things. I have to be well to show up and do well. That's the first challenge. And that in itself is a skill for anyone, let alone someone who's trying to do that while balancing doing that for other people. So back to Kevin Drab and his 10 skills that he talked about. I don't know if I actually even brought him up in the beginning, but I meant to... Um, talk about 
a summary of ten, top 10 basic counseling skills, and I had found them on the Virginia Commonwealth University website. It was authored by Kevin Drab. So, speaking of Kevin Drab, he speaks about attitudes the way that Samsha does as well. Our behavior is so important, and the behavior oftentimes is as big a component in positive outcomes is the skill. So having a good attitude and the behaviors that we demonstrate, they work well for us in our favor for positive outcomes. The three that he listed are enthusiasm, confidence, and belief in the patient's ability to change. If we don't believe that they can change, they're certainly not gonna believe that they can change. That's such a big deal. Confidence, that's a big one. And I'm just gonna to touch on that one for a second. We are increasingly confident the more that we practice our skill and educate ourselves and process with other professionals. So this isn't really a job where we can show up and wing it all of the time. We will end up winging it and we can be confident when we're doing it. However, we have to intentionally grow ourselves and when we do, the confidence grows with it. The clients really read that and they see it and they look for it because they're not feeling so confident themselves. So it seems like when we have those behaviors, when we have those attitudes, the clients are more likely to achieve their goals when there's a good therapeutic relationship. Our relationship to our clients is one of the most powerful tools. And when we just focus on case management, it's difficult to develop that therapeutic relationship. It becomes more of a wants and needs interaction. This is what I need. This is what I'm going to do. And here are your resources. Have a good day. I'll see you next time. It's hard to develop a relationship that way. So that's where the counseling part really starts to work in our favor because we get to establish a foundation and have a beautiful process that's established on relationship, which does a lot of the work for us. So he lists 10 skills. I'm gonna go over five of those skills that I believe are important to addictions counseling. I think all of the skills that he identifies are important, but for time's sake and just to make sure that we get through this process, we're gonna talk about five of them that I think are really big. The first one seems really obvious and we talk about it a lot. It is something that is educated on in master's programs, recovery, uh, addiction counselors programs, and it's a little bit different when we get on the floor and we have as many clients as we do and appointments as we have. And oftentimes we bring mm, preconceived ideas or schemas with us that prevent us from being able to do this first skill really well. It's listening. Listening to our client. Attending. Being there with them. Letting them know that you're there with them by making eye contact with them with your body facing them, mirroring their body positions, um, some of the words that they're saying, letting them know that they're with you is a big deal. That is oftentimes one of the most powerful motivators for change because they're able to sit with somebody that they feel connected with because that person is attempting to connect with them. So there's two, um, there's two components of listening and observing. There's the attending, and then there's the listening and observing of the content and process. Content is what the client is actually saying, the words that are on the page, and process is what the client is actually saying with their body language, themes, interactions, and a really good example of this might be asking a client, an individual, hey, how are you doing today? And they say, I'm fine. So the words on the page are that they're fine. Their tone, their arms crossed, their lack of eye contact says something is not fine. 
they are not fine. And that's where I get to really attend and be with them to observe that and just ask about that discrepancy. And when I can do that, that helps an individual really be seen. There's a lot of dialogue to be had around the two differences between the content and the process. The second thing that he talks about is being genuine. And I think this is probably my favorite. Be yourself. It is okay. You can show up as yourself, quirky, funny, uh, serious, whatever, whoever you are, when you show up that way, they will pick it apart. That's what our clients do because they don't trust. They're in a lot of pain and their defense mechanism is to project, rationalize, distract, all of those things. So they will pick it apart, but that's still okay because in the end, who you are and the fact that you get to represent yourself in a way that shows that you love yourself and that you're okay and you're confident with who you are demonstrates that to them and maybe they haven't had that role model for a while. And by the time their defenses start to come down and they are feeling better about themselves, they appreciate that you showed up as who you were when you did. So they sniff out people who are disingenuous. It's inherent to who they are. They will pick it up in a heartbeat and they will tear it all apart. And you will do more work trying to repair that than had you just shown up as yourself. And it could really be, um, it could really be you just saying, I'm doing, I'm really happy for you when I'm not actually really happy for you. They can notice those incongruencies. So just being able to be genuine and who you are and quirky and all of that is a good experience for both you and the client. And I tell a story often when I, my whole caseload, at one point I, there was a period of time I worked with all women and I had a caseload of 10 girls and each girl disliked me all at the same time. It was probably one of the most challenging times, few month periods that I've had in my role. Usually the ups of the week balance the challenges of the week. However, this, these weeks were laced with challenge upon challenge upon challenge. And each girl would come into session and they would start with why they didn't like me. It was something I didn't do. It was something I didn't do on time. Sometimes it was simply the fact that the other girl didn't like me, so this girl was taking a stance and she wasn't going to like me either. I was too nice. I was too positive. I used the word beautiful too much. I was fake. You name it. I was all of those things. I had actually just come back from vacation and some of the girls uh, had ended up on my caseload at the tail end and so I was just meeting them for the first time so I was compared against the person that they had saw in my absence and there were a lot of opinions about who I was and they thought that I wasn't that I wasn't genuine that, that they thought I was too too fluffy and I intentionally I had to practice because it is exhausting spending your days under such scrutiny and I would be really intentional I would be myself and I would continue to use the word beautiful I would continue to be nice I'd continue to be positive that's who I am at my core I love 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 people I love interacting with people I'm a happy person I'm aware that sometimes I am happier than the average bear and um, I am an eternal optimist. And I really try to check that when I am in sessions with my clients, the eternal optimist part, because I know that's not always where a client's at. But in general, who I am as an individual is happy and optimistic. So, I mean, I stayed that way because that's who I am. 
but I was able to meet them where they're at and validate their experience and say, hey, I really hear, I hear what you're saying right now and I thank you for sharing that with me. I think that's really a big deal that you're able to articulate that and share that with me and I'm wondering if we can do some work around that. If you if you'd like, I'd like to be able to explore that with you and figure out what it's about, what you need from me and how I can lean into that. And we would process through their current experience and it ended up being a very magical group of girls. These girls went from not wanting to tell their case manager anything, case manager being me, to only wanting to tell their case manager, that being the person that they trusted me um, to process and go through. So I had to go from um, not having any trust with them to them having all their trust and then trying to figure out how they were going to utilize and encourage them to use other support systems to help them through their processes where they didn't just lean on me. And it was just very amazing what they did for themselves and the work that they did on their hearts and emotionally by being able to show up and say, hey, I don't like you and this is why I don't like you. And we were able to do such beautiful work with that. And the girls would always joke and use the word beautiful and they would quote it and they would overuse it in process group. And essentially they made fun of me. Um, but what was really cool about it is that I was good with it. They could be good with it and they could use it however they wanted to. And, um, our relationship and the work that we did together ended up being amazing, very magical. So un unconditional positive regard is where we're going to go on to next. And I'll say that unconditional positive regard is a challenge that we face in this industry because oftentimes the behaviors of the addict are difficult to continue to be positive towards. A particularly difficult client with ongoing behavioral challenges can be exhausting. And the non-professional in us, the human person, the person who we are before we get to the office and afterwards wants to roll our eyes at the 33rd complaint and throw our hands up in the air and refer this person out because we can't do anything for them. The case manager in us gets tapped after numerous interventions. We've tried referring them out to this place uh, for ancillary services. We've tried this intervention, this intervention, this intervention, and nothing seems to be working. And over extended amount of time, it can really start to jade how we view a client. And I want to emphasize that the way that we view our client has everything to do with everything. Before we get to this point, it's important that we are processing with our supervisors, that we are talking about what's going on, that we are leaning more towards the professional and the counselor in us that is excited about being creative, that is challenged by the challenge. Because the more that we rely on our personal selves and our characteristics in this moment, the more we just start to get weighted down by the challenge. And so before this starts to happen, talk about it. Because when it does, it's difficult for everybody. It makes sitting in the room difficult with the client. It makes having them in a process group difficult. And it's not, it's not okay. It's not fair to the client. They show up because we're the people that are supposed to have that unconditional positive regard for them. So find a way, find a way to see them in a positive light, whatever that might look like for you. Perhaps you have a tool, perhaps you have a way, perhaps you have a way of detaching yourself. I have a coworker who after meeting with a difficult client, she will stand up and she will imagine collecting up all the attachments of that session and then just chopping them off and letting them go. And it's a beautiful representation of what it looks like to cleanse ourselves and to have some healing and space after we sit in a room with 
with such a heavy disease. So that's her way. I wonder if you have a way that really works for you. It's important. It's important that we figure out how to stay on top of this. I don't know that our clients have really ever had somebody that could show up for them unconditionally and look at them in a positive light unconditionally. It doesn't mean we have to like everything that we do, but we do have to have positive regard. The next skill that Drab talks about is concreteness. And I chose this one maybe for myself, maybe for you guys. Concreteness is something that I struggle with. I get distracted. I can tell a five minute story in 30 minutes and include six other stories in that 30 minutes. I could lack specificity, whatever. I can lack being specific. Um, And I can lose my client in a heartbeat or really any other individual that I'm talking to. I can get so passionate about something and want to talk about it and just beat a dead horse with the information that I have. And that's not always effective. While it could be educational, it might not be effective. So be concrete. I practice being specific, identifying the facts, conveying the facts. The clients are trying to figure themselves out. I think that rapport is damaged when they have to figure me out too. And I have to say there's been times where they'll just say, I don't know what you're saying. I'm confused. And I love when they do that because that gives me an opportunity to reflect on my communication style. I have opportunities to improve that every day. Counselor self-disclosure. Drab states self-disclosure in this way. So I'm going to quote this off of his paper. The counselor shares personal feelings, experiences, or reactions to the client. Should include relevant content intended to help them. As a rule, it is better to not self-disclose unless there is a pressing clinical need which cannot be met in any other way. Remember, empathy is not sharing similar experiences, but is conveying in a caring and understanding manner what the client is feeling and thinking. In our industry particularly, we have a lot of professionals who are in recovery themselves. So self-disclosure is a few things, but sometimes sharing similar experiences. And I think that's a trap that we get into a lot in this industry. When we use our own recovery story and experience as a tool, that becomes exhausting. Our clients think they're unique anyway. Our story can be identical to their story and it doesn't, um, It doesn't have to be, um, what am I trying to say? Our story can be identical to their story and they still feel like it's different. They're not seen, they're not heard. It's not about my story being the same as your story. It's about connection. Our clients want to be connected with. So I think it's okay in rare occurrences. My own personal challenge to myself was to act as if I was not in recovery and utilize the skill and theory as someone who was not in recovery. Once my professional skill was nailed down, which took many years, I'm still nailing it down. I then played with my own experience and to see if I could incorporate it. It turned out my experience really didn't have a place in the individual session. Even though the clients seem to really care whether I'm in recovery or not. So they will ask, are you in recovery? Is this person in recovery? And what I find more often than not, they don't really care if I'm in recovery. They care whether I can connect to them or not. So one of my favorite questions is, tell me a little bit more about why it's important for you to know if I'm in recovery. And more often than not, what I learn is that there's a fear that I won't understand them. That if my drug of choice is the same or not the same, that I won't understand them. If I went through withdrawal or early recovery or hairy relationships, 
then I can understand them more. And so we get to talk about that fear of not being connected with. And that is such a beautiful process. And because I don't rely on my own personal experience, I get to engage in that and go there with them as opposed to saying, yes, I am in recovery. I've been right where you're at before. And then we move, then they say, cool, that's great. And then we move on to the next thing. And that therapeutic process around their fear of not being understood gets missed. So that was the last one of his skills that I really wanted to emphasize. The other ones that he talks about, I think, that are equally important that I didn't talk about at length are empathy, open-ended questions, interpretation, information giving and removing obstacles to change. We do all of that stuff on a regular basis. We learn a lot of those things in the counseling classes that we take in order to be in this profession. I'm not going to emphasize them here. However, I do think that they're worth looking up getting more information on and practicing in your regular routine. Something that he mentions in his paper is have an intention or a therapeutic purpose for every question that you ask. Your client's time and your time is valuable. An hour a week or less sometimes is not a lot considering the gravity of this disease. It's not a lot considering the case management services that we have to provide as well. And so when I am intentional about what I do, we can start to get to the work. We can start to get to that healing process. We can start to look at the art of what counseling really is and highlight that in those sessions that we have with our clients. It becomes meaningful for them. They start to develop insight. They get excited about the change that they're making, although it doesn't always come across as excitement. And the therapeutic relationship is strengthened as a result. And so I really think that's important. I wanted to add that at the end there. The therapeutic relationship with the skill, with really owning it and being confident and showing up in this space and loving what you do, that therapeutic relationship that you align with your client in begins to work for itself, both personally and with your client. When your client knows that you have their best interest at heart, when they feel like the work that they do with you is productive, when they walk away with an opportunity to grow or have grown as a result of the time that they spent with you, that trust, that respect, that foundation does so much of the work in setting the tone for the next session or setting the tone for when I make a difficult recommendation that the client might not necessarily want to hear, but can hear it because of the relationship that they have with me. And personally, for me, that relationship begins to work in my life because I start to feel the winds of a seemingly winless disease. There are a lot of opportunities to be knocked down. And that example with that caseload and all the girls just hating on me for a while, that is exhausting. And if I showed up every day just to be in that and live in that, then this wouldn't be very exciting. But when I can do my work and help them do their work, it gets exciting because we see progress and I see humans instead of numbers. I see pain instead of behavioral issues. And when I'm positively invested in the work, I see positive outcomes. And so it starts to provide a feedback loop that really just keeps gas in the car. So it's difficult to do all this and it's taken me a long time to really be able to put all these pieces together and feel really great about what I do and how I show up. And it took the establishment of my own professional boundaries in different ways that allows us to grow, allowed me to grow, be challenged and changed by my experience of working in this field. I have, I shared earlier about going on the pendulum, being one way very task oriented, moving the other way very counseling oriented. And I tend to do that with 
everything. I tend to go rigid first, get really good with that, then go loosey-goosey, and then find myself back in the middle. And I've had to do that with the way that I the way that I show up. And I know that I'm not the same counselor today as I was 10 years ago. And each client that I've met with, each of them have been an opportunity to grow and change and connect and be challenged in such a cool way. I really am thankful to them for their experience, uh, for their experience contributing to my experience. So showing up and doing my work and allowing the client to do their work is rewarding to say the least and there have been times and I'm really embarrassed to say but there have been times where I forewent I'm not sure if that's a word but I would forego forewent my own work to show up and do their work when I reflected I could see how I came across as an over-involved mom naggy maybe a little controlling all these things that I um, have shame around and embarrassed to say out loud but as a result I've been able to grow but but showing up that way as the over-involved mom the client trusted me less the sessions were less fruitful it was more like pulling teeth watching the time just slowly tick by hoping that the 40-45 minutes would come by hoping that I would have enough meat for a thorough document, for a, a, a case note. And it, it's exhausting to wake up that morning knowing that that's what I'm about to do. I know that this client's on my caseload and it's going to be a drag. It, it just starts to work against me. So when I really look at what my responsibility is as the professional in this setting and I set myself up in a way that allows me to thrive within those boundaries, I can show up and do my work. I can have respect for the client who is doing their work in the way that they want to do their work. I can look at what I can do differently, intervention-wise, therapeutic-wise, and try to tweak it and change it some. And I can still allow them to have their process and not subscribe to all of the chaos and get involved in that so much. Before we close, I just want to spend a second emphasizing the negative impact of burnout and how it spills into our personal life and into our professional life. And we've touched on that a little bit here and there. Burnout is inevitable. Earlier, we talked about the webinar that Dr. David Mealy and Deborah Teplow did, and this was about um, the self-care and what's necessary, and we talked about me being well, to do well, and they identified in their webinar some of the personal and professional repercussions of burnout. So I just want to talk about those things with you before we close. So the personal effect, when I'm not caring for myself, when I am really becoming weighted down by these job tasks and these duties and this disease that we're up against, this disease is heavy. And it is, it. I mean, just to be up against it every day in itself is, is a challenge. And so when we get to that point and when we start to experience that burnout, the personal effects are broken relationships in our own lives. Sometimes people might turn to alcohol and substance abuse themselves, the professional, the clinic, the clinician. If they're in early recovery or in recovery at all, oftentimes it might get to a point where they start to return to substances for their own coping and their own way to get through their burnout depression becomes heavy, functioning outside of work becomes more difficult, and we get into this cycle where I'm not happy here, I'm not happy there, I come back to be more unhappy here and more unhappy there. The relationships, the people around us, our own life really can begin to suffer. Professionally, there's a decreased quality of care, there's increased errors, 
there's decreased patient satisfaction, decreased productivity and professional effort, and we have the turnover that we talked about earlier, the turnover that happens so much in this industry, and it really becomes this cycle of more unhappiness, just more, more, and more, and it gets difficult to get out of. And so I really want to talk about that and highlight it because what we've been talking about in this in this session, the skill, the excitement, the curiosity, the ability to show up, be challenged, grow professionally, come up with new ways to challenge your clients and come alongside them. The ability to do that uh, helps decrease that burnout. The ability to have these solid relationships decreases that burnout. And I just want to say, if you're there, it's going to happen. Feeling burnt out is inevitable. I see it regularly. If you're there, talk about it. If you're there, take a good look at what's going on in your own life, your nutrition, your emotional well-being, Do you need therapy? That's a possibility. It's hard to do our life and show up, as I said, with somebody else and do their life with them. So really taking a look at all of that. And that in itself can be exhausting. It can be exhausting to do all of that while having to do all of these other things. And if it has to do with being confused about what exactly is your role and what is it that you're supposed to be doing with a client, Ask your supervisor. Ask for clarity. Say, I really feel like I'm spinning my wheels here and I'm showing up each day and I don't really know what it is I'm trying to do. I know that I'm trying to meet some goal and manage some case, but what is it that you want me to do? What is it that the vision calls me, the vision of the organization, what is it that the vision of the organization calls me to show up and do in this space. And sometimes just having that clarity allows us to take a deep breath in, reset, refocus, and that can make a big difference in the work that we have to do. I also want to say having our space around us in a manageable way and having organizational skills about our job is super important as well because there are so many strings attached to our clients that we, as the case manager and the addictions counselor, are expected to hold and manage and report about and document on and move with and share with the client that if we can organize our information in a way that's helpful for us, that we can track what we've been doing, what we're going to do, what we need to talk about, tasks, so on and so forth, that that can work in our favor as well and allow us the space to breathe and think and alleviate some of that pressure of trying to remember all of that and keep all of that information in our head. We're always trying to manage multiple tasks, uh, variables at any given moment. And so whatever you can do to organize it, I highly recommend it. Whatever you can take out of your head put it down on paper, or put it somewhere for easy reference, I encourage you to do so so that you can free up the space to take care of yourself as you move along in this process. And I really believe that what we do is a gift. It really is. And I really believe that we don't show up here on accident. There is a reason, there is a motivating factor, there's some moving force that brings us to this field to work with this population. Maybe you can identify that for yourself now as you're thinking about it. I ask you to lean on that and remember that when you're struggling because because I don't think we end up here by accident, but I do believe that A number of us show up here and we don't receive the guidance and the training and the support to to effectively fulfill our role or we don't really have an understanding of what skill to use, how to use it. So we default on our own resolve to try and figure this out. 
So if that's you, and I also want to say, just a side note, I get a little sidetracked sometimes, but I also want to say that sometimes people do just stop here for a minute and they were meant to go on, but some people weren't and they go on anyways. So if you feel like you're that person that's meant to be here, I hope you really take this information information to heart and really seek and ask for the guidance and training that you need to really be effective in your role. And the last thing that I want to leave you with is that I believe that the work that we do, mm, the return on the work that we do can be really slow. This isn't an instant gratification industry. Oftentimes, you may not see the impact of the work that you do for several months or even years. And we joke about it a lot um, amongst my peers and my coworkers that when they're coining out, when our clients are coining out at 90 days, sometimes that's the first time that we even realize that they even liked us, that they even got anything out of the work that we did together. They'll take their coin and they'll thank the staff and they'll say, you know, this staff really helped me while I was here. I learned so much about myself. I feel so much more emotionally stable. I feel like I can go back out into the world and we'll look at each other and just smile, obviously in gratitude and excitement, but also because no one, they didn't tell us that. They don't tell us that in the individual session. The last interaction that we had with them they were telling us that they were mad because they got in trouble because they didn't make their bed in the morning or uh, they were upset because we were adhering to some programmatic rule that they didn't agree with at this stage in their recovery. A lot of our interactions with these individuals is really about uh, the day-to-day -day stuff and really has a lot to do with the uncomfortable feelings that they're experiencing. So when they get to that point out 90 days later and we've go been going week after week and just coming up against these uh, these client experiences that aren't always positive and they say these beautiful things and we are able to just smile and take it in and just know that the work that we're doing does actually work and it wasn't as um, it, it, it wasn't as bumpy as we thought it was and the information that they are taking away with them is valuable and oftentimes we see that in their exit interview information as well they say the most wonderful things about us as clinicians and the work and the very specific uh, skills that the clinicians use with them that help them get through something very challenging. So this work, I like to call it residual gifts because it might take 90 days for that individual to provide some positive feedback about the work you're doing. It might be a year. And I had an example where I had a client who we worked really well together and really hard and she got into some good stuff. She was challenging and beautiful in everything that a client is, and she ended up relapsing. And a while back, so this was probably two years, maybe three years ago now, two and a half years ago, she um, ended up relapsing, and a while back she texted me, and she told me that she had six months sober and how excited she was and how she recalled the time that we spent in our process groups and the support that she had from us. And so those types of miracles are happening every day and the work that you're doing is valuable. And so remember that there are gifts in this work and there are residual gifts and they will start to come in and start to reinforce the work that you're doing. So I love you. I love the work that you're doing. I thank you for being here. I hope and I wish for you health, balance, love, support, anything that you need in your life so that you can be well for yourself and show up and do the same for these clients that we work with. Until next time, be well. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. 
If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.